Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a cloudy day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Ben Walden. Ben is the founding partner and director of Classic Mythodrama and a senior associate of Olivier Mythodrama, a professional training and coaching company. Ben, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Pleasure to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you as well. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast, first and foremost, is to sort of get an idea of what your take on leadership is. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost, Ben, is what that word leader actually means to you. Well, uh, I I think it's a, a very evolving term and a very fluid term, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, what leadership means, for instance, at the moment is, is a number of key areas. Obviously, this is a time of, uh, of you know, significant crisis, mm-hmm. and um, the what we, people are facing very, very severe challenges. And for me, in the face of all of that, there are loads of areas where leadership is required. But the one that comes up most for me is the idea of service. And I think we're seeing extraordinary leadership and courage, which would be another. Uh, theme, I would add, particularly in uh, many of our first responders and in our on our NHS wards. And I think we're seeing models of leadership there. So uh, I know it's not a new theme, but I think it, it's very important to, to see what so many of those people are doing, which might be seen as service as also being what I call great leadership, courage, responsibility, care, nurture, um, uh, really understanding and, and uh, mastering their craft and doing a very pressurized and skilled job with great responsibility and service. That, for me, feels key leadership themes at this time. They're also very Shakespearean themes as well, I have to say, Scott, but perhaps we'll get into that in a bit. Mm, absolutely and um we t- we often hear it said don't we that um times of difficulty and times of crisis do often bring out the uh, the best in people and we've seen so many stories of teams that have been literally working hard without complaint whether they're at home or whether they've had to of course go into various sites um how has it been for you responding to this crisis so far because i can imagine it has been quite the challenge particularly in your line of work it has been a challenge, but again, and I know that this point is made a lot at the moment, but I do think it, it, it's very important. You know, it's not the challenge that some are facing in the heroic work they're doing, sometimes without all the equipment they need uh, in, in frontline healthcare and, and in first responders. Where the challenge comes down to us uh, in our own way is that obviously this is a, a time where everything is shifting. So we had a great deal of workbook that was about traveling and being with clients in a room. And a lot of that is now moving online as and when the clients are in a position to work or feel that they can go ahead with the session. Sometimes they're doing them from home. We're doing a lot uh, online and remotely with clients as well. But that's been a major difference for us. And with that, learning more and more about how you transfer these courses online for a while, we had been very involved in trying to do more online because of the uh, the whole real issue of carbon emissions. Uh, in the past, our company for work has uh, we work all over the world, so we fly, and we had wanted to really significantly lower those carbon emissions in any case. So this had been a big conversation for us in, uh, at the start of the year, 
and we were already trying to do more online. So in that respect, we were a little more prepared for it. Um, but taking things online, working online, and trying to do depth coaching and significant helpful coaching with people online has been a major new priority for us, really. Mm. And as you say there, sustainability is one huge talking point that's come out of this uh, whole situation. And I can imagine it's been also quite a learning curve as well, because it's often said that we are in unprecedented times. And I imagine that you've probably never experienced challenges like this throughout your career. No, I mean, we, it, it, there's never been anything like this. And I'm sure that for many people who listen to this podcast, their businesses and their lives and their and their, their work have, have, have never been affected in the way this is affecting us. It, of course, it isn't unprecedented, but it's unprecedented really for our lifetimes. Um, one would have to go back 100 years to 1918 to see a, a, an equivalent event. And of course, in, in there was a time, it's interesting reading... Uh, Hilary Mantel's book recently, The Mirror and the Light. Of course, they were constantly conscious of where the plague might be or sweating sickness and how it took away a lot of people at a very young age. Uh, It's a theme that also affected Shakespeare's life uh, personally a great deal. But in our times, this is totally unprecedented. So, yeah, it's a huge learning curve. and, And it takes us into what we might call the archetype of the transformer, where we are we are basically taken on a journey that none of us expected and that is enormously challenging. And we see a lot about what we're made of and we see a lot about our ability to be flexible and to let things go that just aren't going to be done in the old ways anymore. Certainly not anytime in the near future. And we can take some positives from that experience, uh, can't we, as well? Because I think being thrust out of your comfort zone and having to deal with some sort of adversity can actually be a really important part of one's development, can't it, either as an employee or as a leader? It, it, it's a vital part of development. The, the great irony I always find and have always found in the work we do is that it's these experiences that are often the great, often the greatest crucible, really, for transformation. Mm. And yet they're the bits we would never sign up for. And uh, in this case, obviously, there are very obvious reasons for that, because this is a very dangerous and potentially lethal virus for people. And some of the things we've been seeing on television are absolutely heartbreaking, frankly. But within that, we have no choice but to try and learn something from it and develop from it. But that's very, very challenging. And, and in the program we've run for years on, on Henry V, there's a the whole section around the Dark night. And uh, in, in the case of the story, it's the night before the Battle of Agincourt when he's massively outnumbered and facing really fearful odds. And it's at those moments that we are really tested and find out a lot more about who we really are under what we pretend to be or claim to be. Um, and those vanities are stripped away and we have to really work authentically and offer something that can be useful. Yes, absolutely right. And um, I think at times like this as well, it's important to remember that as humans, we do have limitations, don't we? And we are fallible. And it's important not to necessarily be afraid of trying things and failing at things and then maybe learning from them along the way as well at times like this. Yeah, I think that's always important. Um, And the whole concept of failure, which I think even is an issue from early stages of education, uh, tick means right, cross means wrong, is a very limited way of looking at a lot of what happens, I think, within the business community. Mm. A lot of the most uh, dynamic ideas have failed before they succeeded, and a lot of experimentation doesn't work out. Any pharmaceutical company can tell you that. And so 
with that in mind, I think that, that, that failure is a word that always requires a bit more examination than it's sometimes given. Mm, and I think um, it might be a cultural issue here, isn't it, that we kind of sort of, um, we're very quick to criticise a failure. And it makes people, especially in the younger generations, afraid of trying things, afraid of taking risks because of the fear of failure and the fear of criticism, as it were. But I think really we should be telling people to embrace it and be willing to learn from it, shouldn't we? Yes. And that's a major theme, I think, in education as well. The the idea that students should be able to risk getting something wrong in order to develop their own creativity skills and their own kind of entrepreneurism in the broadest sense of the word, including social entrepreneurism. Uh, I run courses with students around leadership and, and about uh, leadership in their community and their school, for instance, alongside uh, some of the other work we do at Metadrama. And there, one of the things that they meet is that in trying to lead something, occasionally I'm going to fail, and then I have to I have to meet that and work with that in myself and learn something from it. Uh, and that doesn't come in conventional curriculum. That comes far more through uh, experience and trial and error. I would certainly agree with that. And um, one important uh, facet of leadership um, as well that um, I've um, seen um, over the years um, emerging is this um, idea that leaders are meant to not just lead, but inspire people as well. Um, is there anybody that sticks out um, throughout your life and your career who've maybe been an inspiration to you, Ben? Yes, I can think of a whole number of people who've been a, a huge inspiration to me. Um, Mark Ryland, who ran the globe for 10 years, and I think is one of the greatest actors in the English-speaking world. Mark was a huge inspiration to me. He uh, was a very kind man, a very generous man, and someone who really cares about the people he works with and, and, and works passionately on their behalf. Again, this theme of leadership and service. So he's someone I would uh, enormously admire. Mark would certainly come to mind. Uh, and then there are other figures who in the world of theatre, for instance, have done extraordinary work in terms of social issues. So Augusto Boal, a great Brazilian theatre director, is someone who I had the honour of meeting and who I again found to be an enormously generous and kind man and a very visionary uh, figure in terms of using theatre for social issues. And he was a real inspiration to me. So, uh, And then a third, I have to admit, would be Carl Jung. Now, I never had the honor of meeting Carl Gustav Jung. He was a bit before my time. But um, Jung's work, particularly in the realm of archetypes, mm. is something that has had a major influence on our company and on the work of our founder, Richard Olivier, and on the work we do. And the archetypal development work has been something that we found to be amongst the best learning we have. And do you think within your um, industry and also within theatre specifically that good and effective leadership is as recognised perhaps as it should be? Yeah, I wonder sometimes. It was interesting in the years when I could, uh, for people listening to this, uh, for years I was an actor. I played a number of lead roles in the West End and then at the in the inaugural company at the Globe. And um, I don't think, for instance, actors really see themselves as leaders. And I know that when I uh, was an actor, I found it a frustration that I wasn't making more decisions and that I wasn't able to have more control over what I was doing. Um, leadership in the arts tends to come in a strange way. It comes more as kind of prompt and commentary and trying to speak truth to power. It's not so much formal administrative leadership, although, for instance, whoever's running the National Theatre or the Globe is going to find that she or he is having to do a lot of administrative leadership. But beyond that, 
um, it's more commentary and provocation and the area of shedding light on that which can be spoken through art. So that's always been a very important theme in the arts, that it is able to speak about that which needs to be said, but which administratively often gets overlooked or is being neglected. It's interesting that actors aren't necessarily uh, seeing themselves as leaders because nonetheless, I mean, they are very much influential people, aren't they? Especially those that are in the public eye. I guess so. I, I, I have to be honest with you, Scott, and say I've always had a very tough view on that. I, in terms of uh, my own profession, I, I've always been pretty tough on that. I remember once Michael Caine, uh, I think it was at the Pride Britain Awards, hearing about some extraordinary story of some person who'd shown absolute heroism in the face of tremendous difficulties. And he came out and said something like, if there are any actors watching this, this should remind you how unimportant you truly are. Mm. And I have to say, I rather like that comment. I, I, it's not that I think actors are unimportant or that theatre is unimportant. Very, very far from it. It's just that I think that we have to keep perspective. And, and at the moment, um, what we're seeing, for instance, in our NHS wards is, is really a reminder of, of where the true, uh, the true leaders sometimes lie. Where there, uh, many years ago, um, uh, Gordon Brown uh, published a book called The Heroes of Everyday Life. And I, I love that book. And one of the things that I find really inspiring in it is the reminds us that in many levels, leadership is happening very quietly within community from individuals who are not necessarily always in formal leadership roles. And this is a very exciting vision of the future of leadership, in my opinion, that it's much more dispersed and that we understand it moves and is fluid within groups depending on people's calling and expertise. Mm. I would certainly see where you're coming from there. And I would um, agree with that largely because um, I do think that leadership and especially within the NHS, as we're seeing at the moment, has been um, it's sort of gone unnoticed, hasn't it, over a good number of years? Because culturally, as a country, we are tempted to think of leaders as being people who are celebrities, who are politicians, who are sports personalities, don't we? Yes, that's right. And, and that I would see as a mistake. I mean, at least partly a mistake. Of course, many people who are leaders are also famous and are on TV a lot and so on and so forth. But leadership is a far deeper theme than that. And in many ways, the real theme is leadership of my own life for each individual. And, and, and within the red education realm, for every young person to believe that they have leadership qualities and to find a way that they can contribute to their communities, to their schools, and uh, feel a sense of advocacy for themselves, that they can make a difference in the world. This is a very important education theme, and it's a very important leadership theme. Mm. So if you were to give advice to that next generation of emerging leaders, it would be to find their calling, essentially, find where they can contribute and really find the advocacy for that. Yeah, I mean, there there are many different practices of leadership, and uh, certainly what I personally would say we need far less of is narcissistic, over-controlling, self-aggrandizing leadership that is in service to the political ends of a person's particular private interest. That feels really unhelpful. And I think a situation like the current one really shines a light on that. And the kind of leadership that feels far more purposeful and useful is perhaps far more distributed, far more about groups working together to achieve really uh, developmentally helpful ends for their communities and where we are seeing women and men in leadership roles who are really trying to do something to help the community around them but then we're seeing what i think is the most inspiring form of leadership 
Mm, it's certainly food for thought for the future for those uh, listening to uh, today's episode. And if we do think about the future um, again, Ben, before we do wrap things up on today's programme, um, do tell me what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for Mythodrama and what you really hope to achieve in that time as well, particularly in navigating this crisis and then emerging from the other side. Well, the, the, the key theme, obviously, I hope everyone in our team stays well and uh, is okay. And uh, then beyond that, our main aim is to uh, largely online offer work that can be really transformative and or supportive for people with the challenges they face at this time. And, and that's where a lot of our inquiries are coming in at the moment. There's a lot you can do with people, and people are discovering this all over the world. I did a, for instance, I mean, I did a talk last week for kids at a school in Sao Paulo, an English-speaking school in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which was all done online, which in a way in the past I would never have considered doing it. And we did it that way because it was the only option available to us. And uh, it proved really fruitful, and the, the students in that group want far more work. And the same thing is happening with our business clients, is that we're finding that a lot can be done that people haven't always given credit to online. And I think that will change a lot of what happens in the future as well, especially with the environmental issues and the impact of a lot of heavy travel. So developing programs that and uh, offering work uh, that is particularly in the archetypal realm and around archetypes of behavior and how those affect how we interrelate with others can, I think, have a huge effect are online in a way that many of us hadn't realized until recently. The online world can be a really fruitful, positive world and a lot of good things and a lot of deep learning, deeper learning can happen within it. So that that's the aim. And I would like to think that continues after this crisis ends as well, because I think from an environmental perspective, it can have a really positive impact. It certainly is changing times. And what I think would really be fantastic, Ben, in the next few months, once we start seeing those changes borne out, is if we could perhaps get you back on the programme to look at this retrospectively and catch up on that, see whether those changes are indeed happening and also catch up just on how the company's doing as well. Um, But for now, I have to say it's been thoroughly enjoyable, really insightful and an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Not at all, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, Ben. That was Ben Walden from Olivier Mythodrama. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage 
obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well.
How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.